All right, let's turn our Bibles to Daniel 9. That's a little, this is the last time you're going to hear me say that, Daniel 9. Next week it'll be Daniel 10, but this week it is Daniel 9. We are at the last time we're going to look at the 70 weeks. We're wrapping it up. Uh, we have looked at the introduction to the 70 weeks because the 70 weeks is so controversial. And then we've looked at the purpose of the 70 weeks because the 70 weeks are so confusing. And today we're going to look at the scope of the 70 weeks because the message is so contemporary. It's, a temp- it's contemporary in that it has much attention in the church today, and it's contemporary in that it has a very real application for us that we're going to look at. So we're going to look at the scope of the 70 weeks, and that means we've got to wade through some waters that are a little uh, more detailed and wade through some waters of a little more uh, attention to the text uh, and walking through the text than might normal because of how controversial and how confusing it is. The 70 weeks we have grown up in the air of believing and seeing a certain particular interpretation of the 70 weeks, just being growing up in the church, just being a Christian and attending church today, you can't help it, but you naturally breathe the air of a certain interpretation of the 70 weeks. It's the interpretation that's behind the phenomenon of the Left Behind series. You go to a Christian bookstore and you see all the books. That's the perspective of the dominating interpretation of the 70 weeks. I am putting forward from the scriptures a minority report. Just a little folk over here saying, hey, we're here. There's another interpretation out there. There's another view. So I'm just kind of raising my hand and saying there is another view out there than this dominating view that seems to be uh, it seems to be what we all naturally think it is and believe it to be. Okay, so here's how we're going to begin this past week. I was on the phone with my wife and I was feeling very tired and very discouraged now. For me, that is a, that's a volatile combination. Discouragement and tiredness. It forms this perfect storm in my life that's not a good time. What tends to happen is I end up making uh, a lot and magnifying my mistakes and magnifying my mishaps to such an extent that they get so big and so big and so big that I, I can't see anything else. And also when I get into this type of season, uh, the opposite takes place. My mistakes get bigger in my eyes, but God gets smaller in my eyes. In other words, I don't make much of God in my eyes. How he's at work in certain situations is getting smaller and smaller. How he is at work in me and how he's at work through me gets smaller and smaller. So much so that I don't see him. So the conversation went like this. She could hear it in my voice. I said, hey, how's your day? Honey, is something wrong? Nah, fine. And then we began to talk out what was going on. And as we talked out what was going on, she said something that really stuck me. She said, honey, do you know you feel this way every spring? And I said, you're right. I do feel this way every spring. Because she was pointing out a truth that's very true for me. I don't think any of you else can relate to this. But for me, that in the spring, I run out of grace. I run out. 
Now, I know I'm the only one that wrestles with that kind of reality here this morning, right? None of you wrestle with running out of grace. None of you do. You don't run out of grace. When, when physical and vocational fatigue pushes into your spiritual life, you never run out of grace, right? You don't run out of grace when you're tired of being single. You never run out of grace when temptation knocks on a very hospitable heart in your own life. We don't run out of grace, do we? We never run out of grace when the evil one pounds on your conscience with the hammer of your own sin and your own failure, right? That's an unbelievable hammer, isn't it? Wham! On your conscience, your sin, your failure. Do you ever run out of grace when that happens? Do you run out of grace when the Christian life takes you down a deep, dark path? And you don't know how you got there. And you don't know how you're getting out. Do you run out of grace? Do you run out of grace when everything goes your way? I mean, everybody likes you. Everything you touch turns to gold. You succeed in everything you do. Everything goes your way. Everything's great. Everything is sunshine. You're walking on it. You're so comfortable and things are going so well. You forget about God, right? But you never run out of grace. And you never run out of grace to pray. You never run out of grace to persevere. You never run out of grace to deal with that difficult person that you need and are called to love. You never run out of grace when you need to go and resolve a conflict. You never run out of grace when you're seeking the Lord to help you open your mouth to talk to someone you deeply care about or a stranger that you just met about Jesus. We never run out of grace, do we? Or do we? Well, as fascinating as this last week that we're looking at of the 70 weeks assumes you run out of grace. So we're moving to the 70 weeks and we're getting to the last week of the 70 weeks. We're looking at the scope. The scope of the 70 weeks assumes that you run out of grace. It assumes that I run out of grace. So right now, the, the immediate application, the tremendous impact of something that's been relegated to only a clock and only a calendar has immediate implications for you. Right now, the 70 weeks tells you you can retake into your soul the fact that God knows you run out of grace. There is tremendous comfort and there's tremendous power and there's tremendous peace in the reality of knowing that when we get into the 70 weeks, we're going to find out that God actually knows that you and you and you and me, that we run out of grace. And he assumes that you can't fix it yourself. And so this passage, the scope of the 70 weeks, is here for those who know deep in their soul that they run out of grace. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. All right, we're going to look at verses 24 through 27. So again, those of you that are just joining us, you've, you've walked into a beehive. We're swirling around with the bees of the 70 weeks, and you're wondering, how did we get here? And I'm telling you, we got here because we're moving through Daniel. This is not a planned destination for me. I don't enjoy pain. Does anyone enjoy pain? No. 
The 70 weeks is pain. It's been pain for three weeks for me. One of you have asked me just the other night, we were at a, the social, the, the big kickoff of the ball here on Friday night. And he says, now, what are you going to do? Are you going to postpone this another week? I said, no, no, we're going to move as quickly as we can here. All right. So Daniel, Daniel is praying. That's the majority of what's happening in these first couple of verses up to verse 19. In 20, you get a summary of the prayer and you get God's response to Daniel's prayer by sending Gabriel. All right, one of those praetorium guard in the heavenly throne room. God's messenger. And then here is what the messenger says. Seventy weeks are decreed, 24, about your people and your holy city to do six things. Remember, we looked at last week to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both the vision and the prophet and to anoint the most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from what from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty two weeks. So what's seven plus sixty two? Sixty nine. So see, you can read this. It shall be built again with squares and a moat and in a troubled time. And after the sixty two weeks, so we're at the sixty ninth week, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. So the end of a 69th week, commencing a 70th week, this anointed one's cut off. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. This is where it gets a little sticky. Who's that? Well, there's great, great answers for that. Its end shall come with the flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week... He shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So right away, you know, the last week is divided into halves. Half of the week in the beginning, half of the week at the end. Oh, my. Here we go. And on the wing, it says, but the literal translation is, I think, is better. On the extremity of abomination shall come one who makes desolate. In other words, there's a desolator who comes until the decreed end is poured out on the desolate. That's the literal translation. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh, Lord, we all acknowledge that we run out of grace. And we are so grateful and so thankful that you know that. So even now, Lord. I petition the Prince for grace, grace to speak, and grace for all of us to hear. Oh Lord, would you help us walk through a difficult text and see that it can be done, and it can be done joyfully. And it can be done with clarity. And it can be done with life-impacting grace. Would you do this, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I've been reading uh, a couple of books on preaching. It's usually in the spring that I start grabbing them again. I take them with me on the summer. And there's just some very interesting 
very interesting concepts of preaching that are going out today. And I've mentioned this before, but I just read another book that just said it again. And that is that the stuff that we are about to do in the next 15, 20 minutes, I'm not supposed to do. Most of the models now for preaching are, it's a 15 minute, and they say if you go over 15 minutes, so I'm doomed. A 15 minute, one point hit hard application. And you use the text and you go into the text to buttress up your application. But the text itself, you need to move quickly through because it will not hold people's attention. And we wonder why we're not an outpost of the kingdom of God today, but we're more like Disneyland. So let's look at this passage. Let's believe the Lord that his word is the power of God. Let's trust that every word is here not to be wasted, but it's here for our edification. It's here to teach us and rebuke us and correct us and train us even the 70 weeks. Even controversial, tough texts. Are you with me? Okay. All right. So I said what we've done. We have done, this is our third week. So we've, we've hit an introductory level because it is so controversial. We have to wade into, there's seven major interpretations of the 70 weeks. You have to address them in some manner. So we tried to do that. Then we had to get in through all the confusing realities of the 70 weeks and we got to get our bearings. You got to ask yourself, well, what is this thing all about? I mean, is it 20 points and 20 different directions and get out your stock clock and check your calendar to see what's happening next? Well, that's why we went to the purpose level and at the purpose level, we focused in on what the purpose of it is. Today, we look at the scope and the scope of the 70 weeks, which is taking in when are the 70 weeks taking place? The whole scope of the 70 weeks is to actually push in in a very real way that God knows what it's like for you. And he knows you run out of grace. So there's tremendous compassion and there's tremendous care and there's tremendous fatherly love in this passage for you in the scope. The 70 weeks is like this, and I've said this before, but it's, I think it's the best picture. When you are a child and you are a parent and you're, you're walking with your child and you're holding your hand and you, you know you love them, they know you love them. But there are times in your life and times in that walk when you reach down, grab the child up and give him a hug or her a hug and hold them tightly to your chest. Look them in the eyes and say, I do love you. I will take care of you. Set them back down. This is one of those texts. This is one of those texts that, yeah, we walk with God and he holds our hand and we know that he holds our hand. And every once in a while, though, he reaches down and picks you up and looks you in the eye and says, I'm with you. I love you. I'm for you. Set you down. Okay, so this is not primarily about a calendar or setting your clock to the end time. All right. To get to the scope, I have to mention some of the things we already mentioned, Ron Bradshaw. This is our conversation so that we're not all lost because I see a lot of new faces. If you would have been here next week, 
Last week, we would have missed a lot. So let's do this. The 70 weeks on the entry level, you need to know three observations in order for you to get the scope. We can't move on. The one is this. The 70 weeks is a response to Daniel searching the scriptures to find out when will the promised return happen. Look at verse two. I'm making you look in the text. I'm not supposed to do this. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord, Jeremiah, the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Do you see that? So the context of the 70 weeks is ultimately a response to Daniel's prayer about are we returning because Babylon fell and we're in the Persian rule for the first year. It's also a response. Look at verse three. A then I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer. So the 70 weeks is a response. To Daniel searching the scriptures and to Daniel's petitioning prayer to return to the land as promised in Jeremiah. Everybody with me? All right. Now, the 70 weeks is also a vision. And this this truth here separates The seven major views, it separates the pack so clearly into three and four. If you see it as a vision, you go into where three interpretive realms go. If you see it not as a vision, but as a literal number of years, you go with four interpretations and the major one that's going on today. Okay. now I want you to see because this is important. Look at twenty three. The text tells us what it is. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. What's the word? Remember, the word is the heavenly decree in the counsel of God that now finds manifestation historically on earth. The answer is happening. When Cyrus, which we get in the other historical books, gives the decree in 539 to go back into the land, Cyrus the Persian, Israelites go back. When that decree happened, that established on earth what Gabriel's telling Daniel now, God has already said is going to happen. Okay? A decree went out. All right, so the word. So the decree is word. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you. So I'm telling you the word. I'm telling you about the return. For you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Ah, now something's just happened here. What's happening is the word equals the vision. The primary bucket of this passage is vision. Apocalyptic literature. Picture. It's meaning through pictures, not meaning through literal numbers. That just separates the pack right there. Okay? That means that uh, this vision is a picture, which we're going to see about the purpose, which is the Jubilee, not a calendar clocking literal 490 years. Now, the other reason why we said this can't be true is because the 490 years don't work with the time frame anyway. If you go from the decree in 539 to Passover 33, it's 572 years. Oops. So you've got to make the numbers work. And so these interpretations that take it as a as meaning through literal 490 years, because 70 weeks equals 70 Sabbaths, which is 77. So 70 times seven is 490. 
So 490 years got to work. All right. And so that's where they're off making the numbers work. Now, this vision is also a picture introductory level of something, a vision that must pass through this interpretive filter that begins in the beginning in verse four and ends in verse 27. And it's called covenant. All right. All right. So the vision, the picture must pass through the interpretive lens of covenant. Why? Because Israel has failed to keep covenant with God. Look at verse four and five. Oh, Lord. I pray to the Lord, my God, may confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Five, we have sinned. We have not kept covenant with you. And thus the lists of covenantal failures. So what we have here is Israel's broken a covenant with God. Now, this is a national covenant that has a principle of performance driving it. In other words, the principle of performance for this national covenant between God and Israel is, Israel, do this and you stay in the land. That's the filter. So we know that whatever the 70 weeks are ultimately dealing with, they've got to deal with this performance that has become poor in Israel. And led to the breaking of the covenant. So if the 70 weeks interpretation ignores that, you're off in the wrong direction. So you have to answer questions like this. Does Israel's national performance get better when they return to the land? Does it? Virginia? No, it doesn't get better. How do we know it doesn't get better? The minor prophets are screaming about it all the time. And we know that it doesn't get better because in 70 A.D., Rome comes in and wipes it out. So something's going on here about a performance driven national covenant called the old covenant. The old covenant has got to be dealt with. Now, let's move purpose. You've got to know about the purpose is that it is to push you. The purpose of this whole 70 weeks is to put before you a picture called the Jubilee. And the purpose of this passage is to take you in the back and put the strong right leg on your hind sides, grab your shoulders and thrust you into the Jubilee. Carrying with you in your heart and in your hands all your stuff. The Jubilee happened in the middle of Israel's stuff. Every 49 years on the 50th year, the Jubilee happened. Land transactions had taken place. Debts had occurred. Slaves had happened. Moms and dads had been separated. Children had been separated. Land that was given by Moses at the beginning and and the 12 families has gotten sold off and mixed up all over. And all of a sudden, though, at the Jubilee year, the 50th year, all is released and all is redeemed. It's grace. It's a year of grace. Everything is fixed. And so the purpose of this picture is actually 70 weeks is actually giving you 10 jubilees. And this is found in Leviticus 25, 8 through 10, if you don't believe me. And that means 70 weeks, 70 weeks is 70 Sabbaths. A Sabbath happens every seven years. Seven Sabbaths equal one jubilee. So seven times seven, 49 or 50. 
Put that into the 70 weeks. 70 divided by 7 gives you 10 jubilees. And that means it's a year of grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. That's the purpose. Now we're ready for the scope, okay? When does this take place? That's the question. Has it already taken place in the past? Is it taking place right now? Or is it yet to take place in the future and we're still waiting for it? And then we've got to ask ourselves, who cares though? So what, Jeff? So what? What's the point? Does it really matter to you? Does it really matter to me? Does this passage have any prickly points to get us at all? Or is it just nice speculation and nice controversy and nice tough text and move on? Well, obviously, I'm going to argue it does. Okay, so let's move through the scope to get to the prickly point. When does the scope of the ten jubilees take place? I want you to see that the first jubilee or seven weeks or seven Sabbaths or seven seven is the historical return back to Israel. Look at verse 25 a. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word or the decree or the vision to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be what? Seven weeks. This is the particular historical concern of Daniel's prayer. When do we go back? Well, the first seven weeks, the first jubilee is you return to the land. Okay. But it also contains, obviously, nine more jubilees. (laughs) Why? Because God has in mind the one story that rules them all, not just one chapter in the story. So, yes, Israel's historical return to the land is a chapter in a greater story, which means ten jubilees. Year upon year upon year of grace. Okay, so we got to get to that. So that's the first scope. We see wasn't that bad. Seven weeks, the historical return. Now, the next 62 weeks. Now it's 69 is this verse 25 B. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. Well, what is this time? Well, this is now Israel is back in the land. Back in the land. But they're having a troubled time. They're back in the land and they're still spiritually declining. They're still not living up to the do this and stay in the land stipulations of the covenant. Okay, I want you to look at that little phrase with squares and a moat. I think one commentator says it best. This is prosaically writing style making clear that the restoration is a is a material one. Perhaps it refers to the internal layout of the city and perhaps it refers to the exterior defenses. Squares, city built by squares, moat. But the point is this. Israel is literally, materially back in the land. 62 weeks. That's the point. But... In a troubled time, their performance is poor again. Okay. Now, here we are. So now we're at at what happens after the 69 weeks. Seven, 62, 
Now we're at the 69 weeks. The commencing of the 70th week happens in verse 26a. So let's look at it. After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. All right. So an anointed one is cut off. And that marks the ending of 69 and the commencing of 70. Now, depending on your interpretive lens, that anointed one could be a major different interpretation. Depending on your interpretive lens, that anointed one could be Christ himself. Or the Antichrist himself. Or Onias III, which was a high priest in Israel during the Greeks. And he got deposed. He was cut off. Do you see how this works? So, it's interesting though, that the ones that move it towards Onias and move it towards the Antichrist are the ones that have the lens of a literal 490 years. And those that see it as a picture, the Jubilee is a picture of a year of grace, of God pushing you into a kingdom of grace, see it as the Christ. Obviously, you know where I land. Okay, so I'm going to assume that you're with me. And if you're not, we've got to talk about it later. Okay, I can't spend all my time doing that. Look at verse 26a. What's fascinating about the word cut off is that that word karat is the word that is used to cut a covenant. Now, again, the interpretive filter, the interpretive context of this whole passage of Daniel 9 is covenant theology. The prince is being cut off and in being cut off, Another covenant is cut. Not performance driven, but promise driven. Another covenant is cut that is the basis of the Jubilee. Okay. So the prince is cut up. Now, what kind of covenants being cut here? Well, the text even tells us. Remember at the very beginning, look at verse 24. We got these six purpose statements of the 70 weeks. And remember, I summarized those last week as saying that generally speaking, they're pointing to the seventh day. More specifically speaking, they're pointing to the Jubilee. Well, notice that the, the last four divine acts of these six Speak of what happens when the prince is cut off. Look at him. To atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. The middle two speak of the work of Christ. The latter two speak of the work of Christ in its final fulfillment at the consummation. So what we have here is fast forwarding 570 years to another night on another Passover. There is a prince who gathers his his 12 followers to him. And on that night, he tells them and it's on the Passover night and he grabs the bread and he breaks it in their presence. And says, this is my body, which is for you. And he grabs the cup and he says to them, this cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of your sins. Drink all of it. 
so what Jesus is actually referring to is that another bond in his blood is cut. A new covenant. And I believe Daniel was given a vision of that. Okay? Now, so here's what we have so far. We have 69 weeks. Seven, the historical return. 62 weeks, they've returned. They're in the place, but they're still spiritually in poor performance. And the old covenant order, the demand for justice is hanging over their head. And all of Israel is waiting. Is there a true Israelite out there? Is there? Is there one who will do this and bring God's people into the land? Is there a faithful Israelite anywhere? The prince is cut off. And he gets nothing. The true Israelite. 69 weeks. The 70 week begins. What is the 70th week? I'm going to tell you the answer. And we'll probably have to talk about it after the service if you want to talk about it. Here's the answer. What's taking place in the 70th week is there are two dramas of two covenants happening. There is overlapping drama of an overlapping covenant. In other words, let's look at it. I know I saw the look on your face and you know what I have in my notes, Susan? What? That was for you. For that look. Yeah. What? What? What this means is the drama of the old covenant is taking place in that half week while the drama of a new covenant is building. You have an overlap. That's why the week is divided up into half weeks. You have the old covenant order coming to an end. Remember, we said the context is what about the covenant? God, you keep covenant. Israel doesn't keep covenant. We continually fail. Our performance is continually poor. Will the curses fall on us? And the answer is, yes, they will eventually. The covenant, old covenant order that demands performance comes to an end while the new one's cut of grace begins. Okay? So what we have here is, let's see if I can do it. Verse 27. Verse 27. And he shall make a strong covenant with many... For one week, uh, don't get don't get too comfortable. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. What's happening here is that do you see the end of the old covenant order here? In other words, the performance driven covenant is coming to an end. While a new one begins. Here's what I have. Two things are going on. A new bond is formed while the old bond is failing. That's what's happening. But the failing of the old bond, as Paul tells us, was planned. It was meant to bring failure, to lead everyone 
to the true Israel, to Christ. So a righteousness cannot be established by performance. A righteousness has to be established by another. That's the point. So here we have, you look at that bond and blood. Look at the verse 27. Put an end to sacrifice and offering. Now, it can be read two ways. Because there's an overlap here. Half a week is dealing with the old covenant order. So what's happening is you have the cross, but then for 70 years until 70 A.D., the Romans come in and destroy Jerusalem. Jesus talked about it. He says this will be the desolation of the temple. This will be the ending of the old order. It will happen at 70 A.D. So this half week, the cross to 70 A.D., but notice what's all this is. The coming to end of the old covenant order is dying. At the same time, there are apostles going forward. The book of Acts is going forward. The church is going forward under a new covenant. It's starting to disentangle itself from the collapse of the old order. As the church age takes place, that's the next week. And these two overlap. And it's fascinating that in Revelation... That half week of the church age, that three and a half years or three and a half of seven or half of seven or half of a week, Revelation picks up on that language and says that's the age of the church. Isn't that fascinating? That's for free. All right. Now, put an end to sacrifice and offering because the prince is the sacrifice and the offering. Do you see that? The old order, new covenant, now replaces the old covenant. There's no longer sacrifices and offering because the prince is the sacrifice and the offering. The blood of boats and boats, goats and bulls. Goats and bulls cannot take away sin until the one who comes in once and for all, his sacrifice takes it away. But don't miss the other meaning here. The other meaning here is put an end to the sacrifice and offering because the temple and Jerusalem is destroyed. And that's the immediate concern of this text. The old covenant order. And so you've got to ask yourself, look at verse 27b. Now I think we can start explaining things. Well, let's go up to 24. 24 Remember the first two? You're all wondering what that means to finish transgression and to put an end to end to sin. You know what that is? That is when A.D. 70, the temple is destroyed. The old judicial hammer of the old covenant order has come down. Sinning against that covenant is over. God ends it. It's a judicial act. And Jesus refers to it as a judicial act from God. It's done. Okay? So that explains that. So that's, that's good. Go down to 27b. For half a week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Obviously the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed, so that's over. And on the extremity of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolate. In other words, covenant curses are unleashed on the national Israel at that moment. Go back up. To 26b, and the people of the prince who is to come, and this is the one everyone gets tossed around about, the people of the prince. Well, if it's Jesus, these people come in and, and do this? What is that? 
The people of the prince is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end shall come with a flood in the end. There shall be war and desolations of decrees. What is that? One commentator said, listen, when the national Israel reject its king, its king acts. Its king enforces the curses of the covenant. And so the Roman army becomes the Lord's army. Okay? And that's why when you go to verse 4, look at verse 4, it says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, here's the literal translation, O Lord, O King, King, the great and fearful God, who keeps covenant. And in A.D. 70, he does. But from the dust and the ashes of the old covenant order, a new covenant is cut in grace. Jesus himself. So what we have here is why is this important? Why do we just do this? Why look at the scope? And the answer is because of verse 27a, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. God knows you run out of grace. And the question is, when does the prince make this covenant strong? In other words, remember, those who've been following me, you can make a covenant strong or you can cut a covenant. We saw Karat, that the prince was cut off, a covenant was cut. But here, it's not karat, it's confirm. So in 27, he's confirming a covenant that's already been cut. And he's confirming it during the last week. Who, who lives in the last week? The church. Who lives in the last week? You right now. God knows that in this last week of redemptive history, before he comes again, between the church and the consummation, that's the week. And remember, it had a half a week. It had to deal with the old covenant order coming to end. The apostles and the books and the Bible being written and disentangling itself from that. And then you have the church age to the consummation. But this time we live in right now is the last week. And you need him to make it strong for you. You need him to make it prevail for you. You need him to make, you need him to reach down and pick you up and hug you. And I need him to do that. That's why this is so important. So this is how we're going to end. We're going to end by dreaming a little, okay? Let's dream this way. What if when physical and vocational fatigue finds its way into your spiritual life? Okay, what if that happens? And what if you realize God knows I run out of grace? And you petition the prince for grace. You petition the prince for his renewing and reviving presence. 
You say, oh, Prince, I need your renewing. I need your reviving presence because I'm out of grace. I am out. I am so fatigued and I am so tired and I am so burned out. I can't hold my thoughts anymore. And you know this. You know I run out of grace. Oh, great prince, I petition you for grace. The grace of your reviving and refreshing presence. And he makes his covenant strong. What if you're tired of being single? And you realize God knows I run out of grace. And you petition the prince For the grace to trust his providence, to trust his wisdom, and to trust that he is enough for you. And God makes his covenant strong for you. Let's keep dreaming here and let's say when temptation knocks on the door of your very hospitable heart. Your heart's so hospitable, it's like, come on in! And when temptation knocks on your very hospitable heart, what if you realize, God knows I run out of grace. Oh, Prince, I petition you for the grace of your satisfying and strengthening glory and goodness. And God strengthens His covenant with you. What if the evil one comes pounding on your conscience with your own hammer? You ever noticed how we're so, we're so bad we give him the hammer to hit us with? Oh yeah, t- take my sin. What? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Now take that failure. Yep, bang. We give it to him. And he picks up your failure, he picks up your sin, and he pounds away on your conscience. Accusing you. And you realize, oh God, you know I run out of grace. Oh Prince, I petition you for the grace to trust in your righteousness and not my own. And God strengthens his covenant with you. I got one more. Actually, I got two more. What if the Christian life takes you down the path of deep darkness? You say, Oh God, you know I run out of grace. You petition the Prince for the grace of his experience, for the grace to experience his hold on you. His lifting you up and His loyal love for you. Do you realize that only He gives that? Do you realize that Paul says it this way? He says, I pray that God floods your heart with His love by His Spirit. That is nothing more than you trusting God to give you the grace to experience His hold on you and His loyal love for you. In order for you to experience God's love, He has to hug you. The Holy Spirit gives it. 
And that's why we're called over and over again to pray for it, to petition it, to ask for it. And God strengthens his covenant with you. You get the picture. We've just dreamed a little. We dreamed a little of what it would be like for us to get into our thick heads when we run out of grace that God already knows that. It's the 70th week, brothers and sisters. And that's why he makes his covenant strong over and over and over again. So petition the prince. 